0: I I think that moment, and, and not for the reasons that uh, many of my colleagues would look to it. In China, that the Opium War is is the dividing line between modern and pre-modern. Um, no, I don't think that. I okay. don't think the, I, I don't think the West had you know that kind of an impact on China actually. Hmm. Um, uh, and I also I don't think it it's all about you, you know that the great issues involved there are imperialism or, um, you know, opium itself. I think the great issues there are, this is one of those moments where um, a man is standing there, his feet on the ground, and he's looking at the future that mm. he that he can't prevent, right? It is, it really is. something. I mean, nowadays we fantasize this as the asteroid that's heading for Earth and we can't divert it. It's that kind of a thing. I mean, he saw like an asteroid coming at China and uh, couldn't divert it.
1: Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here today with Dr. Pamela Crosley. Uh, Dr. Crosley is a specialist on the King Empire and modern Chinese history, and also researches and writes on central and inner Asian history, global history, the history of horsemanship and Eurasia before the modern period, and the imperial sources of modern identities. She's the author of eight books, uh, forthcoming uh, is The Hammer and Anvil, Nomad Rulers at the Forge of the Modern World. And uh, the most recent after that, I believe, is The um, Wobbling Pivot, China Since 1800. And uh, Dr. Crosley, absolute pleasure to have you on today.
0: Thank you. It really is a pleasure to be here.
1: And what I wanted to ask you about today is how can we better understand China and perhaps even ourselves uh, by s- understanding the history of China? Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's why you're here. That's what um, uh, that's your your specialty. How did you become interested in history and how did specifically how did you become interested in Chinese history?
0: OK, there's, there's a lot of questions kind of fell on top of each other there, but there's probably a way to weave them together. Uh, I'll just start with the thing about getting interested in China because it's, sure. uh, easier. I think it was, uh, y- you know, I'm from a different period. When I was in high school, we had the Vietnam War going on. Mm. And um, there were a few other little connections that my family had to Asia in various ways. But I kind of conceived the idea I'd like to take a course on Vietnamese history when I went to college. But then the college I went to was too small and they didn't have Vietnamese history. They only had Chinese history. And then you have to add on to that uh, just by happenstance. Um, my earliest and best friends were uh, students of Chinese descent from Malaysia, Hong Kong and so on. So it just things just sort of yet uh, I was an English literature major as an undergraduate. I did a lot of history. One of my professors said somewhere towards the end, you could go to graduate school in Chinese history. Hmm. Um, she had the idea and um, well, it worked out. <laughs> so there we are. So it was just it was it was actually those things that they tell you histories about, one one darn thing after another. Right? <laughs> um, uh, why I would stay his, interested in China and particularly the period I'm doing. Mm. Well, you know, very very recently um my professor died, who was a very very well known historian, Jonathan Spence. And uh, so I just just today I finished a little essay about that, you know, he uh, just had a way of of doing history and talking about people and experience and the past that really I wasn't the only one before or after. There's a lot of people who, on account of him, Mm. got kind of stuck in the Qing period, which just more or less means the early modern period, Mm. the time when we're on the way to where we are. And um, I think he had a really wonderful sense of what that kind of felt like for mm. these people whose lives were starting to become global. Yeah. So like Jesuits who were going to China, Chinese who in the 18th century, 19th century were visiting Europe. He was particularly interested in those kinds of experiences. And so uh, that was a very, very important influence. Um,
1: I have his book. Is it modern China? It's big and thread. I have it downstairs. That
0: that really big Good. that, That it's a wonderful thing to have on the shelf. It's, it's called the search for modern China. It's, it's, um, the book that you have to have if you're gonna look like, you know, things about China. Um, so that was a, that was a very, very important influence there. Um, I really think um, to get back to the sort of first question that you asked and to mm-hmm. sort of tie this in, um, the way that you put it was very good. What can we learn about ourselves by learning about China? And mm. actually, before we started, you also said something very important, which was uh, um, it, and something that people actually uh, tend to overlook, which is, yeah, most of human history has actually happened in China. I mean, the yes. greater proportion, because that's where the people have been. And it's also it is a long and continuous cultural history. So uh, and in fact, a long and continuous economic history. Hmm. So it really is true that um, the history of China is uh, fundamental to to just thinking about the history of of mankind um i i'm going to say mankind because actually man used to as you may know used to be not a gendered word um so uh uh it's so this is a really important thing to me you know my profession went through a period hmm. uh can't say when it ended because for some people it hasn't ended yet but where um part of the whole approach for people, whether they were in history, political science, uh, history of religion, philosophy, part of the whole thing was to make people think that there's something really, really special about China and you've got to be uh, one of like, you've got to rely, right, on these experts. Hmm. experts like me uh who we've studied the language we've been there we you know we know all the we know about confucianism and so and and so that's you have to look to us for us to tell you about all the wonderful special unique things about china um now people do have to know those things expert knowledge is really important in every single field but the essence of it i think is where you started with your questions which is um, the Chinese are people like us. They're not actually some strange, exotic, you know, weird thing that you have to know a lot of secret things about in order to understand. Yes. On the contrary, mm. because of the um, just the magnitude of Chinese population, Chinese uh, historical experience, They're the most exemplary, right, in some Mm. ways of what's happened to humanity because, you know, the biggest sample, right, is the most exemplary if it has the necessary characteristics of diversity and, you know, representativeness, which China actually does. Mm. So I like where you're starting with that, and I would say that's more or less what the significance is of the study of China.
1: So you think that Chinese history, and I, I'm just clarifying here. So feel free um, uh, to respond because uh, because it is that large sample. It's probably the most representative in one nation of the history of mankind.
0: Yeah, or one culture. Can, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think there there are many ways to look at this. If you wanted to be reductionist, right? We could just say. Well, how about this population thing? I mean, when I was in college, we were still being told that, well, the reason China was having so many problems in the 19th century is that there was a population boom. And then all of a sudden there were like all these Chinese Mm. and uh, that that. Uh, you even hear people today still say the size of the population is the explanation for everything. When things um. are going well for China, the size of the population is the answer because it provides the, you know, cheap labor and, you know, great diversity of talent. When things are going badly for China, it's because of the population because there's not too many of these people. Um, but actually, um, When you put it into, let's say, a global perspective, um, China's pattern of population growth as a general thing is simply, it has the same curve to it, right, that the global population has. Mm. So, yeah, there was a kind of population boom in China in the 18th century because there was a population boom everywhere in the 18th century. (sighs) It just happens that in the case of China, you know, you can do something with Chinese history that you couldn't do with, let's say, Belgian history. Hmm. Okay, so you can look at the curve of population growth in Belgium. It's not going to look anything like the curve for the human population because it's too small, and it's also it's not diverse enough. It doesn't have diversity of terrain. It doesn't have you know, you know, it's in the temperate zone. But other than that, you know. China has a tremendous diversity of terrain of agricultural resources and the probably most um uh how to say well this is a very striking thing that people don't tend to look at when you look at tables let's say you're going to open something and it had all these tables of uh, population growth or anything and then China will always be up there at the top because in fact China today as a as a political entity, right, as a shape on a map, as mm. um, uh, corresponds in a real general way to China 2000 years ago, 3000 years ago. But the other place that actually has a, a history rather similar to that would be South Asia, mm. which today is broken into Pakistan, India, Bangladesh and so on. So you're going to look them up. All separately, and you will never get the picture that you'll get by looking up China. If you see, mm. if you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm. And you, you mentioned it, and uh, I had it written down as a question. What are some of the most popular misconceptions that you deal with teaching Chinese history? Obviously, this idea of blaming everything on population is something <laughs> is, is a common one. Are there any other very really popular misconceptions <laughs> that people just get wrong about China all the time?
0: Um, well, blaming everything on China is a good one. The the other one, yeah, it's around the, the, the other would be China originated everything. So mm. that's like people, and we have people who believe both of these at the same mm. time. Um, uh, I was on a podcast not too long ago uh, in which it sort of came up towards the end that once these myths Um, about Chinese or East Asian history get kind of they wear out with historians, right? They don't die. They go into political science and international relations where they just continue living. So uh, Confucianism, right? Confucianism, the explanation of everything in China. Um, no, I mean, historians would not go for this now, but it, it went over there. It went over there to political science and international relations. And uh, the idea of a, of a Chinese world order, a tributary system, that's mm. all very peaceful. And this is supposed to be historical. All peaceful and China's at the center and it's like the moral leader of all these other little countries revolving around it like satellites. Um, And then you can have people in international relations right now who will actually say, this is historical, which it isn't, but because it is historical, evidently this means everybody's used to it. It's a good model for future relations in East Asia and maybe around the world, where we'll have China at the center, you know? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that in in Chinese the name for China is the central country. Uh, so this is why, because it's going to be at the center of everything. So I, I think um most of the myths about China I think tend to revolve in that sort of direction. Um and in just in recent years we have had Myths being actively promoted by the current government of China. Mm. Um, so that doesn't exactly help to, um, dispel the effect of some of these things. But, um, on that point, I guess I would just add it really is important for people, no matter what they're speaking of, they have to distinguish between China as a population, let's say, mm-hmm. and the Chinese Communist Party which is a very tiny portion of that population and the government of Xi Jinping, which is even distinct in its way from the Chinese Communist Party. So um, people who just say China, this Beijing, that, uh, you know, it can get to be a dead end because uh, these, these are actually distinct sort of actors in, in contemporary history.
1: It'd be like, um, it's like pe- when people talk about just the United States and don't take into account things like, I mean, I live in Central Florida. I used to live in Wisconsin and I used to live in Chicago and I used to <laughs> live in New England. And every single place was it's very different, different. Very yeah. different.
0: That's right. Well, going back to your point about this all, China, just like the United States, is hundreds of distinct societies. Mm. And it's really hard to say anything to make any sensible generalizations about them.
1: If you wanted someone to understand, and I understand you you always have (laughs) reductionism is really hard to do. Like uh, it's really hard to stop. Right. We have an hour, a little, maybe a little over an hour worth of time here. Uh, If you had to communicate what was most important about Chinese history? What moments would you share with somebody, or what themes, or what mix of those two things? Wow! <laughs> um, and if that's if that, uh, what are some of your favorite moments? Maybe perhaps that's perhaps that's the easier question. Well, or maybe that's harder. Hard.
0: That moments thing that's really hard. I mean, I I guess the first thing that I would want to impress upon people, and I, mm. I maybe I do this in my classes, I hope I do, is that um, what you need to know about China is the changeability, the, the ways in which there have been very, very, very dramatic changes in the ancient times, in medieval times, and in modern times. And, you know, China is, I think, one of the the few countries to which um, people generally attach this idea of unchangingness right that oh china you know it's had government, it's had the similar government for three thousand years and you know Confucianism mm-hmm. five thousand years it, it, no, I mean none of this there china is is uh changes and I mean radical changes all the time, including within the last couple decades. So that would be the first thing I would try to uh, kind of, uh, knock loose, right. From people's assumptions. Uh, it, it, the first thing you've got to know about China is constantly changing and radical deep changes, um, mm. in every way, economically, culturally, um, demographically uh, moments. <laughs> uh, well, I think one of the moments to kind of think about, because I I have been writing about this very recently, was um, I think everybody knows about the opium war. They know something about the opium war. They know there was an opium war Um, and uh, that it's all caused supposedly by the fact that Britain wants to import opium into China and uh, the Qing Empire, which is ruling China at the time, doesn't want that. and, um, I think one of the moments is when the Qing government sends Commissioner Lin, who's this famous figure who was given really plenipotentiary powers to go down there to to Guangzhou to the city of Canton, where the British were, and essentially make them stop importing opium. Mm. And make the British, the Chinese merchants who were helping the British import the opium, make them stop doing that. This one guy, he came with a very small entourage and just goes in. I think that that moment, you know, you really think about he was a very, very interesting man, um, very traditionally educated and yet. Uh, And he had a he already had a long career as a kind of troubleshooter in Mm. China, a lot of problems in China already in the 1840s. And I think just that moment where he gets there. Right. And he sees uh, he doesn't right away, but in a short period of time, he sees the British ships coming Mm. It's a time when the British Navy is, you know, nobody beats the British Navy. Right. Um, And he's he's trying, you know, this is this moment here's this huge empire, the Qing, uh, that has a long history of conquest behind it. Um, And now here we are. What are we, you know, to just see like the future coming Mm. at you, right? Mm. With these ships to just feel this thing that somehow I've got to stop this evil from occurring in my country. And yet, how will I do that? I, I mean, that, that sort of, I've got to make this happen, and yet I don't, I'm not sure I have the power to make this happen. And this is not uh, a familiar feeling, right, for me as a Qing official to think, gosh, I'm sort of helpless here, I don't know what to, Um, and to think, is there a way? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was actually, because he was so resourceful, he really did have a lot of ideas in the immediate future after 1839, and then even a little bit later, he had a lot of ideas about how we're going to do this. He couldn't get people to listen, right? He was this one of these voices crying in the wilderness. But I think that that moment there, right, where uh, you have actually a number of really amazing figures in China in the 1840s who were all on one side of this whole problem uh, uh, or the other, right? Mm. You know, opium, we're trying to get rid of it, or we're trying to sell it and become extremely wealthy. The wealthiest man in the world lived in, it was a Chinese merchant living in Hong Kong at that time. Hmm. I, I think that moment, and not for the reasons that many of my colleagues would look to it in China, that the opium war is, is the dividing line between modern and pre-modern modern um no i don't think that i okay. don't think the, <laughs> I, I don't think the west had you know that kind of an impact on china actually hmm. um uh and i also i don't think it it's all about you, you know that the great issues involved there are imperialism or uh um, you know opium itself i think the great issues there are, this is one of those moments where um, a man is standing there, his feet on the ground, and he 's looking at the future that mm. he that he can 't prevent right it is it really is something i mean nowadays we fantasize this as the asteroid that 's heading for earth, and we can 't divert it it 's that kind of a thing I mean he saw like an asteroid coming at China and uh couldn 't divert it
1: that 's an incredible moment um and I think the uh, you you speak to an existential state that I think some of us even start to feel with technology, even as you talk about seeing the future here. Um, my brother just bought an Oculus. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Yes. Uh, yes. And uh, he's talking to me about it. He wants to bring and have me try it. And just this idea that for decades now we have been uh, reading science fiction about living in this virtual world. And now it's mm-hmm. it's here. It's, it's here, Mm -hmm. it's everywhere and it's in our living rooms. And I mean, not that we necessarily would want to stop it, but I mean, how would we, right? Yeah. Um, And so uh, that uh, it, I I love that because it, it gives us that one that hope that we have faced these kind of existential moments. And while they have created radical and dramatic changes, uh, we didn't end there. We didn't stop Mm -hmm. there. Um, And also just that sense of familiarity and recognizing that it it is, it's something we've faced before. It's something that as a human race, we have continually faced. Um, It's really powerful. So thank you. Um, As I I was looking through the different topics that you cover. Uh, One of the ones that really stuck out to me, a lot of your work has to do with the imperial sources of Chinese identity. Mm. What are those sources and why are they important?
0: Oh, well, now here we are back to your idea of uh, all of this really being about uh, everybody. Mm. Um, uh, This is very hard to summarize, but I I think just to make it simple, a lot of the work I've done a lot and that I will be doing in the near future is really about who told us in the 20th century hmm. who we are, right? Yeah. Um, so we have anthropologists who are going to tell us things like, well, um, you know, we can identify groups on the basis of the language that they speak and who their ancestors are and what religion uh, they're practicing um, and whether they have a homeland or things like that. Um, and uh, in the late 20th century, historians did tend to absorb a lot of those kind of ideas about identity. Yeah. Um, on the assumption that, well, if the, if the anthropologists are looking at it, it must be like it's natural. Like people just woke up and they said, Oh, yeah, you're speaking the same language as me. Well, that, that means we must be, you know, we're alike, we're the same. And, and those other folks over there speaking this other language, they're just, they're not us. Um, but actually, no, I mean, sooner or later, you have to ask yourself, well, who said that this is how what identity has to rest on, particularly national identities and so called ethnic identities? And, uh, no, if you were to go back before, uh, let's say 1500, maybe 1600 in some parts of the world, people are building their ide- identities on completely different things. Mm. Uh, languages in the middle ages, you had these universal languages for the Islamic world, for the Christian world, for the, for the Buddhist world. I mean, they had these universal languages that were, nobody thought that because you're speaking some little Local dialect, that suddenly this is your identity, right? Mm. Um, in the Middle Ages, aristocrats had one identity and sort of serfs, right, had this other identity. Um, uh, people weren't just going around saying, yeah, I'm Italian, you know, I mean, there's. This, there was, this wasn't happening. Um, so to me, that was a question. How do you get from that kind of a situation? Or even in the 21st century, when people will build identities on, um, uh, gender preferences or musical tastes, right? Um, people will build, like, seriously identities on this. Um, that's a 21st century thing. It's very interesting. But in the 20th century, that wasn't easy to do. And in the 19th century, you couldn't do that at all. Hmm. So my question was, why? Um And I used the Qing period as an example of how this works, right? That these great empires, the land empires of Eurasia in the 1500s, 1600s, uh, in the course of these massive conquests, Actually generated institutions of identity ascription, you know, you, you got it when you were born. You might have some choices over your life about abandoning it or opposing it or internalizing it, but the criteria were already there along with the institutions to create, you know, the incentive for you to, to, uh, sort of take this on as your identity. And those identities are the ones that were bounded by language and religion and your homeland, of course, because these are overland empires. They just spread out over people's homelands. Mm. These empires not only establish these criteria of identity, I'm thinking of the Qing Empire in China, the Russian Empire, um, the Ottoman Empire. They not only built up these criteria, but they provided all the cultural resources in terms of histories and language primers and, mm. you know, everything you would need, uh, historical geographies, so that at the end of the 19th century, when these empires are dissolving and everybody's saying, well, we're going to have, we're all going to be around when this empire has gone. So what, what are we going to base our a government on? Right. Some of them could assume, you know, my identity is inevitable because Mm. here it is documented. I've got, I go to the library, I show my kids the books, the maps. They understand we're going to survive any state. So the state collapses and then we are still here, right? So if you're the English or the, or the uh, French or the Chinese, right? And, uh, this is, this is fine. We're going to have a state based on us they think that they're doing it uh in contravention of the empire. Actually, the empire gave them these criteria and told them who they are. And mm-hmm. they have now internalized it. Now, at the same time, there are communities all over Eurasia and in fact, Africa and Americas at, the, at that time of people who did not never had identities that were supported in that way by these empires. So Mm. they go into the late 19th and early 20th centuries without the historical geographies, without the languages that have been institutionalized and standardized. Mm. And they do not uh, have the presumption that their identities are inevitable and will survive the fall of these empires. What's going to happen to them is they're going to end up living in somebody else's. State, mm. And so, uh, you know, Jews in Germany or Muslims in China, um, this is where we're getting to this great divide. Right. And, um, and nowadays we call everything ethnic. But in fact, that was what ethnic meant to people like Weber, right, in the 20th century, that um, it was these identities that did not have a claim to inevitability. Hmm. That, in fact, we're not going to become national identities, and uh unfortunately, in the twentieth century, there was a, a sort of um, a portrayal of this by anthropologists as if this was natural. everybody just woke up, and you know this is the way people think, but in fact, my studies of china in fact i'm and now I've done Russia as well, looking at Ottoman is, shows how this happened, how these particular criteria of language and religion and homeland and and, uh, ancestry, how those became a sort of complex of identity that was actually told to us by these empires. And it's a product of conquest. And it isn't just some natural thing that people always (laughs) drift back to, you know, if they... Um, and uh, yeah, you know, as you know, in the United States, we have plenty of identities and yet we can all speak English and that, you know, that doesn't, that in make these identities impossible in any way. Um, but it took us a while to get there.
1: Hmm. Uh, one really interesting, uh, and let, let me just restate this to make sure I'm tracking with you. So in a lot of ways, you know, this inevitability per se, um, mm. Came from the standardization of these languages, of these cultures, and in many ways that that whole idea of standardization was a tool for the empire that was doing it so that they could create the empire. And that was just as important as the conquest itself.
0: That is exactly right. And that is so important.
1: Yeah, that's 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 really interesting because we we do tend to think of ourselves in these often nationalistic or ethnic senses that are seen as just uh, basically inevitable. Um, You've mentioned a couple examples, but if you don't mind, is there a favorite example of yours for for this kind of thing um, where, you know, a particular institution that you could maybe give us a, a more detailed example or uh, maybe a story that you think really uh, demonstrates what you're talking about?
0: Well, I can give you this. I mean, this is very sort of inside, right? But um, I mean, my own specialization in the Qing is is this focus on this group called the Manchus. Okay. um, Who are now on the Internet. This is famous. I mean, there's like this huge enthusiasm for Manchu language and everybody... You know, people will write blogs in this, you know, um, it's it's it technically it may be a dead language is certainly an endangered language, but not on the Internet. You know, it's got this growing sort of um, the Manchus are are supposed to be the ruling uh, group, right, cultural group of the of the Qing Empire. And uh, there are plenty of uh, historians from the past, in effect, now who would describe this as uh, well. This is this identity they are like Mongols that they they lived out there on the frontier they were in the woods or wherever they were, and then they burst out and they conquered china and uh Of course, then they went to live in China because they were <sighs> occupying it but um uh, their identity survived, uh, mm. and, you know, you have to think of, how, wow, how did it survive? They, uh, you're the thing of them being at home and speaking these languages and doing all kind of shamanic things. And, mm. you know, and then when the empire, uh, falls away, here's the Manchus as somehow this, uh, coherent, uh, group, um, like they were before the empire, right? Ah. This is what you're supposed to kind of think. Now, in fact, what we know about this is that, um, this, this, this name, Manchus, was, uh, used as a part of the state building of the, on, out, you know, on the edge of the Ming empire where the early, uh, rulers of the Qing were kind of putting the whole thing together. This was an important part of their state building to actually come up with this name. Uh, that they were going to give to, uh, their, uh, followers. Now, um, people normally think that what happened was the name of another group got changed to Manchu. But in fact, the population living there was already so diverse and already so kind of, you know, there were these spectra of, of language use and religious affiliation and, you know, uh, what people did for a living. It, people were on these, on the spectrum. And it wasn't really just monolithic groups. So mm. it wasn't, I don't think, really a matter of changing one group's name to another. This was a name that as an aspect of state building was given to uh, these um, this population, which was a military population. Mm. Okay. So we go to China, conquered China, and we distribute Manchus all over China for purposes of occupation right? They're kind of like policemen. They're kind of like the National Guard. And there they are.
1: Uh, forgive me. What, what time corners. period are we talking about here?
0: Oh, uh, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Okay. Now the the court realizes, okay, we took these people, we distributed them all over China. What happens when you when you migrate, right? When you move somewhere where you're the minority and they're the majority? Well, you start talking like them, yes you start eating like them yes right uh you start doing what they do for fun and so on the emperors don't want this because all the uh occupiers will disappear they evaporate they would be this. so uh they're insisting speak this language um read this language this mm. is your language right um now while the court is saying this this is your language this is your language actually These all these occupiers are learning to speak the local Chinese dialect and, you know, this is not their language. So the the court has to say, how can we make it come true that this will be their language? So the court becomes a sponsor of language standardization. The emperor himself is sitting there correcting, you know, when they write, they send little reports to him or Mm. requests and they have to write in Manchu language, which is usually not, their own language, um, and then he will he corrects it, red ink actually, and sends it back to them and makes them correct it, send it back in. So no dialect words, uh, no grammatical errors. Uh, you're going to get um, this note from the emperor and, you know, maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, your pay docked for a little while. The court is publishing what you need to study the, the language, the primers, at the same time, the court is making the language very standard. Mm. And in fact, sort of imposing a kind of, you know, basic English kind of rules on it. Here's the outcome of this. Today, people like me, who study this period in history, we have a very easy time of it because the emperor wanted the Manchus to learn the Manchu language. Yeah. And he was determined to make it possible for them to do that no matter what. Mm -hmm. So today we can study the Manchu language exactly as the Manchus did in the 19th century. And we've got all of the tools for that that we need. Right. In the meantime, languages are dying all over the world because Mm -hmm. nobody ever wrote them down. Nobody ever standardized them. And it is also true that, um, there weren't as many Mongols. It wasn't as urgent a thing to do the same thing for the Mongolian language. And so today, although Mongolian script and Manchu script are very close together, Mongolian is a very difficult language to learn because it never got subjected to this ideological program, right? Mm-hmm. Of standardization. As a, so, uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, modern standard Arabic in some ways, is a little bit similar because arabic has been so important as a medium of instruction and communication between muslim communities yeah. which are probably the most widely dispersed across the world yeah. and everybody's got their little language but in order to uh keep the community together they've got standard a standardized arabic that uh again can be learnt right by by other people so um I mean, I, these are some of the effects, and it's kind of a funny and ironic one in my own field that that the emperor was trying to, you know, impose this kind of, you know, demand upon his army. And as a consequence, people like me today, uh, <laughs> you know, we have a very easy time learning the language.
1: That is, that's really fascinating. Uh, and I assume that this would be part of it. Uh, did they make it, uh, did they attach moral language? To learning the language correctly
0: moral language in the sense of
1: uh, what? like good and evil like you know, like uh it reflected on your character as a person
0: yeah i to me, probably the most critical thing was the uh, ability to convey um, political values right mm. so loyalty to the emperor and what makes a good emperor and and um, what are the highest Ideals, right? You have to have a, a peaceful society, prosperous society, and all. I mean, being able to express all of that in a very standardized way. And in the case of that empire, because it was multilingual, mm. these expressions connected to value had to be something that would translate really well across all three of the languages. And if they didn't, that's where the court would be stepping in and making sure there's a lot of publishing going on to mm. get people to understand these terms as equivalent to each other. Um, and uh, things like this happened other, also in the other multilingual uh, empires.
1: Really fascinating and i i, I kind of want to apologize because I understand you know, some of it and you've done a great job of this is uh you've dug into the, uh Chinese history. And I basically asked you to summarize 5,000 years of history in an hour, which is just a ridiculous <laughs> request. So oh, I appreciate well, we your patience.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> But the, uh, so I, one of the, there were a couple things, especially as we face uh, more modern and contemporary problems that I wanted to ask about, what do people need to understand in order, uh, and that would best help them understand uh, the Chinese and Japanese relationship?
0: Chinese and Japanese, Ooh, my goodness. Well, um, I, I mean, China has a much longer documented history, as we all know. I wouldn't personally say five thousand years, but that's okay. The official, the official line of the Xi Jinping government is seven thousand years. Okay. Uh, because that would predate, uh, the Egyptians. And oh, that, that, right. That, Got it. That's, that's really important. Um, there's no evidence that anything that we would recognize as China was going on 7,000 years ago, but, uh, that's the line. Um, I, to me, 3,500 years about right. But in the case of Japan, you know, it's the first documentation, the kind of narrative, right, relating to uh, Japan actually comes from Chinese documents of, mm. of the uh, third century. So let's say it doesn't go back further than that. Um I, I'm not a specialist on Japan, but I've studied a lot of Japanese history. I did teach it very briefly. And, you know, there's this idea that has been partly promoted by China that, well, the thing about Japan is they never really had their own culture. And all they did was just kind of glom onto these things from China yeah. and maybe some, in some cases change them a little bit. But, um, uh, they didn't come up with anything of their own. Um, that's, that's actually not true. And the, The distribution across East Asia, not just Japan, but also Mm. Korea, Vietnam and so on, of things like the writing system that clearly has its origins in China, um, uh, the political philosophy, uh, particularly social hierarchies that Mm. also probably has its origins in China, uh, you know, certain kinds of technologies. That's, that is true. Um, those things move uh, all across the continent and they moved into these other countries. I think a lot of it had to do with prestige of the kind of rulership that was introduced in China in the third century BCE, but it's limited, right? So in the case of Japan, Japan never centralized before the 20th, before the end of the 19th century. It never centralized in the way that China did at times. At times, China is very centralized. At other times, it's totally fragmented. Um, Japan was always pretty much fragmented. The the uh, role of the aristocracy was continuously important in Japan. It was in China, it would rise and fall depending what kind of you know dynasty we're talking about, I think in Japan there was a very small elite mm. was lived with this consciousness that the important things for us are coming from China in terms of the things that give us prestige. We know how to use Chinese characters that came from China, that makes us prestigious in japan um, mm. uh, you know buddhism didn't did not come to to Japan from. China it came from Korea, but it's associated with the mainland. And again, it's something that we brought it in. It gives us prestige here, but it, you know, it came from over there. Um, but at the point at which these importations would impinge upon the basics of social organization in Japan or certain kinds of very strong, uh, elements of the folk religion, Mm. Which much, much later was called Shinto, right? Um, that's the point at which these things are not, these, these, uh, importations, uh, lose their, their power. So I think, you know, Japan has always had a very distinctive identity. For me, the critical thing in doing modern history mm. is that in the 19th century, when Japan had this amazing period in the, the Meiji, uh, restoration, right? I mean, that just this, these incredible men um, putting this all together, and Japan then gets onto this, you know, really astounding trajectory of mechanization and militarization, and and um, that's the point at which it becomes a threat to China. And in fact, by the time you get to the end of the nineteenth century, Japan is actually the most important impediment. Mm. to China's continued independence and prosperity. Um, that's how important Japan came it came to be in a very short period of time. And uh, I think this is a difficult thing because when people tell you that period, they'll normally go on and on about... Uh, imperialism, meaning European imperialism, and, mm. and the Americans are supposed to be part of this and so on. But, um, and imperialism, there was a kind of modified form of imperialism in China, but it was never as important as this rise of Japan and the Japanese, um, determination to expand their control over the mainland, uh, starting with Korea, but the ambition was ultimately would be China and all the way up to the Second World War mm. uh, that that um persisted.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And today, even though the relations are very, very different, yeah, um, the Chinese government always uh, takes advantage of any opportunity to remind Japan <sighs> those horrible things that you did to us yes. in, the, in World War Two, which were horrible. They were horrible. Oh, very. Um, yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, not all Japanese are willing to acknowledge that, but enough of them are that, you know, this this is not something that um, one would in a totally honest way. Mm. Right. Make the center of your discussion. It's 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 historical.
1: Uh, And uh, to be honest, some of that even came uh, that question kind of came from a place, uh, you know, I uh through my teen years grew up in Wisconsin. Uh it's like ninety-five-98% white. Uh and then meeting and talking to oh, when I went to college to uh Asian students um and discovering the animosity between yeah. different, you know, Chinese and Japanese, uh Korean and Japanese, Korean and Chinese. Yes. And uh so and just trying to understand the the roots of that uh, because for um, them it's expressed, it, it, it was expressed very differently. It's not really a historical thing. They're like, we do not like Japanese people or we do not like <laughs> Chinese people. Right. So I, right. what what are the, uh, and so, I mean, you've mentioned some of it, obviously I, it's pretty easy to figure out uh, world war two, but it became clear talking that it wasn't always just world war two. And I think what you said about it, that kind of level of competition, right. Um, uh, and that uh, watching what for them would be considered a backwards country uh, for China, see what they would consider a backwards country all of a sudden accelerate so quickly.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, if you um, yeah, I mean, just as a as a funny anecdote, I mean, when I was very young and um, uh, a guy of, of Chinese uh, heritage, you know, said to me I said I was interested in studying Japanese language and he said, uh Oh, it's just a degenerate form of Chinese. Um, and in fact, this is this it turned out to be that this was this this individual's attitude towards all of Japanese mm. culture, all the Japanese people. They're just this is, uh, I, you know, I don't know what what can you do about um, these kind of attitudes? Mm. Uh, people seem to need them. Right. So if you took them away from them. It mm. probably wouldn't work, but, you know, then what would they do? I mean, they'd leave them as this helpless kind of, you know, flailing around person. with a. So some mm. people need to have this sense of superiority. But um, there are definitely, there are attitudes in China that the Japanese, all they ever do is imitate things. So they imitated Chinese culture for a long time. And then they started imitating Western culture and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's got absolutely nothing to do with history. Those are just attitudes that have come up in China. China, I think, but you know, you said apart from World War II, but in fact, I'm not sure you can do that. I really think that it's the World War II experience that locks this in. Yes, yes. I mean, really, um, before the 19th century, China and Japan did not have a lot of direct contact. Hmm. Um, You know, there was this war in this at the end of the 16th century over Korea, and there was a very very bad war. But as a general thing. Um, and, the, and the 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 um, Tokugawa shogunate in Japan actually closed the country, right? So that they weren't allowed to go to China, you know, get any trouble. But of course, that's not that's just a rule. That's nothing, right? So the Japanese were the pirates. They were they were you know all over the place. So, but, but I think so. There were there were reasons to be contemptuous of the Japanese, right? As pirates, as imitators, as a. But that's just the fuzzy folk ideas that people have i think mm. it's the world war II experience that is what's behind this animosity that um and in korea particularly i mean korea was subjected to a very brutal form of colonization direct colonization by japan um, mm. uh, the whole country yes right? whereas in the case of china you know little, little parts of it but even though that was very very brutal so I think this is the problem. Japan went fascist in the 30s and mm. Japanese fascistic militarism uh just, you know, attacked yes. uh, Korea and China. And these were, I mean, now we're talking about people's great grandparents, but right. when I was in college, these were grandparents, right? Um, In some cases, parents maybe who had uh, come in at the end of World War II. So, uh it was within living memory right that these things had happened so it's convenient right any time you decide you just really you have to hate on somebody um you can always recall those experiences from world war 2 it's yeah. not only the japanese who become the focus of this there are certain other groups who also can get dragged into this depending on where you are in the world mm. um but when you point out to people you know this is almost 3 quarters of a century ago um if it's useful, it's useful, people will stick with it.
1: Yeah. And that I think, you know, I, I think as we kind of wrap up here, uh I, I think you you've drawn some interesting conclusions there for our listeners. Um what would you say um is the biggest lesson that you've learned studying the history of China and you, know, you mentioned a little about the history of Russia, but just studying the history of china what's the biggest thing that has enriched your life
0: uh enriched my life enriched my life um the biggest thing i, I, I you're getting really difficult now there's so much uh you know when you get close to you get into, you know, your studies of Chinese literature, culture, and so mm. on. There's so much that is enriching. I I think, you know, Americans can very easily relate, I think, to this uh Chinese sense of self sufficiency. Mm. Uh, they were on their own for a long time. The empires basically worked like this. You 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 know, we make you pay your taxes once a year. But other than that, you know, you, you take care of these things. So families, extended families, little villages, what all, they were doing it themselves. Um, and when the Chinese became, uh, migrants, right? To other countries, this same self sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to do this for me. I'm going to, I'm going to have to do this. I think Americans really relate to that. Um, when they, deal with Chinese on a personal basis. And I think Chinese relate to this in Americans when they, when they find it, this sense that I'm going to take care of this. Uh, nobody else is going to do this for me. This, you know, I'm going to do this. So I think that this resiliency, this sense of initiative, this sense of self-sufficiency hmm. um, is, is what's at the bottom of what we call Chinese culture, but it's um, at the bottom of a lot of cultures. Yeah. Um, so then you relate to that.
1: Yeah, thank you. And, uh, I, I, and I don't want to miss this opportunity uh, to ask you, because I think this is one of them, something that you hit on quite a bit, the word inevitability and how <laughs> we think things are inevitable, but they really aren't. Um, do you think there's a, a lesson for our audience, both in how they look at history and how they look at themselves, um, things that they assume are inevitable, but really aren't?
0: Uh, well, I think what history does show you is nothing is actually inevitable. Mm. I mean, we're talking partly about a mental habit of historians, which is they they mm. want to tell you that now we nothing's inevitable, and we don't want to do the teleology thing. We want to go back to the point when everything was possible, right? Mm. Um. But in the 21st century, you know, we tend to think in terms of, of quantum mechanics, right? And so what we're really talking about are these collapsing wave functions, right? As we go going. So, uh, before the collapse of the wave function, you know, in the period of superpositioning, everything is possible. Um, but once the wave function has collapsed, then it is what it is. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I don't think, um, uh, we talked about this. I, I talked about this recently on another podcast, but I'll just this will be very brief. Yeah. One time to try to get this across to my students about causality. Mm-hmm. I had this card trick that's actually, I didn't tell them it's based on an algorithm. Hmm. Um, and what you do is you, you kind of, you try to get this other person to think that you're reading their mind because you go through a sequence of cards and they are supposedly the ones who only they know where they started, you know, and then each number of the card determines the next one and so on. And only they know what card they finish with. Mm. But in fact, when you're following along, all you have to do is, is you know, every sort of five cards, it doesn't matter where you start, you're, the chances are four out of five, you'll end up on the same card that they will. Mm. Now, to me, this is causality. This is, uh, there's nothing about these cards, any of these cards that is determinative in itself, but their position in relation to each other and their relationship to the overall size of the deck and so on. Um, so uh, to me, what it suggests is that overall, the chances are something, maybe not four out of five. You'd have to scale it up to the universe, right? From like <laughs> five to but, but you know, there's some, some, chance, Mm. some likelihood, that things are going to be more or less the way they are no matter what. Mm. So I think it's a nice antidote to the people who say everything is contingent. And it's like one little decision made by this person here, there, the other place is somehow rather going to change history. Mm. Um, I think the chances are, let's say 20% that it might, but the chances are 80% that it won't. Um, so, hmm. on this inevitability thing, I mean, that's more or less why it would come out. Uh, I think in terms of superpositioning and then collapsing wave functions, and we'll probably be about where we should be.
1: I, I like that because you know, like there are those chances for um, these radical kind of changes, and sometimes those radical changes look radical, but they aren't, right? They they were buried in the patterns all along, but uh, there are chances for change, but uh, we have to also just reconcile ourselves to that a lot of things are what they are, and uh, I think that's a, or or they will be what they will be.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, even after I make this demonstration for the students, I say, I haven't told you anything because you don't know what is in the 20% and what is in the 80%. Mm. So always do the right thing, um, (laughs) no matter what.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Crosley. It's been a real pleasure having you.
0: Very nice talking to you.